Before long, we'll be where it would have taken mankind millions of years of learning to reach. And what will Mitchell learn on getting there? Will he know what to do with his power? Will he acquire the wisdom? Please go back while you still can. Did you hear him joke about compassion? All else, a god needs compassion! Mitchell! Welcome to Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I am Steve Morris. And I am Scott Nance. And I am so excited to... Not that I don't like the cage, but we are leaving it behind and going where, as you said, no Mance has gone before. Very exciting. You know, I feel like, okay, we had to do our due diligence with the cage because it was the first episode that they actually filmed. And we are going in production order and you can't go any earlier than the cage. But I feel right. I was like, I was so excited to get the cage sort of out of the way. For so many reasons, where no man has gone before is a landmark episode. It's a milestone. Not only is it a second pilot, which was very, very, very rare, even to this day, for any series to have a second pilot, a chance at a do-over, but it is actually an episode that still, in 2021, still stands as one of the very best episodes of Star Trek ever produced it so is it's so compelling and it's and it's funny too because you think about all the other star trek series and i have a lot of love particularly for next generation and an appreciation of all the others <laughs> every single one of them took at least a season or two to hit their stride and figure yeah. out what they're doing this is the pilot and it just right. nails it and we'll even talk about it. i think the first scene of the pilot is like that's it. I, I agree with you completely, Steve, and I'm glad you brought that up because you know, like what I love about watching the original series in production order, the way that we are doing Enterprise Incidents, and it makes perfect sense because for the first half of the first season, like you see that they are still trying things out, mm-hmm. that they are still finding their way. It took, I would say, about... 10 or 12 episodes for the original series to really find its footing, to really figure out what the show was going to be, what the tone was going to be, what the dynamic was going to be between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you know, the the big three, as they call them. But it's so fascinating, no pun intended, to watch them figure it out, to watch the way that Leonard Nimoy in episodes like Mud's Women and and even The Enemy Within and uh, Corporate Might Maneuver, that he still doesn't quite have Spock down yet. And clearly the makeup of Spock in Where yep. No Man Has Gone Before is different. You know, the uniforms are different, although they are certainly getting there. I always like the uniforms of Where No Man Has Gone Before. But, but there is so much about the Star Trek that we have come to know and love that was right there in that second pilot and right there in that very first scene, the prologue. So, so let's, let's talk about how we got there. We talked already talked about last time on the cage that Jeffrey Hunter, Christopher Pike didn't want to do the show anymore. So they go out and look for a new actor to be the captain of the enterprise. And naturally they go after Lloyd Bridges. <laughs> they go after Lloyd Bridges and he, you know what? That's a good get. That would have been a good get. Sure. And he certainly had the uh, uh, presence, you know, being uh, on Sea Hunt. Um, but they also, you know, Lloyd Bridges did not want to do 
science fiction. He felt like it was beneath him, uh, which is ironic because in uh, 1978, 1979, he played Commander Kane on Battlestar Galactica in the two-part episode, uh, The Living Legend. And he was great. He was great, uh, you know, sparring with uh, Lauren Green as Commander Adama. Uh, the other actor that they were uh, kind of going after there was Jack Lord from Hawaii Five-0. And the reason that he didn't make the cut was he wanted, he wanted partial ownership of oh. the show. And Gene Roddenberry was like, sorry no way that's gonna happen <laughs> and it's so funny because you picture this alternate universe where one of these guys is the captain of the enterprise and again like we said with jeffrey hunter we wouldn't probably be here talking about this right now nobody is having a as far as i know there is no sea hunt podcast out no, there that, not, absolutely not absolutely as far not. as i know <laughs> not that lloyd bridges and jack lord aren't fine actors but they are not the man that fills the captain's chair better than anybody else. And that is William Shatner. And I think we need to take a moment and pay homage to Captain Kirk. And I think we have to talk about how this guy got there. You know, he's, he's Canadian, born in Montreal in 1931. I also have to say, as a Jewish man, I know you are a Jewish man, Captain Kirk's Jewish. And, and so, so is Mr. Spock. <laughs> and it's so, because I can't say that without hearing Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. You, you, don't need Dector Halls or Jingle Bell Rock because you can spin a dreidel with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, both Jewish. <laughs> um, and, you know, this guy is a theater actor and he did Shakespeare. He did Shakespeare uh, with the Canadian National Repertory and then he went to Broadway. He had his Broadway de debut in 1956. Here's a gig that he had that I didn't know about. He was Ranger Bob on the Howdy Doody show in 1954. <laughs> I, I did know that. Um, I didn't I, know that one. It's, it, you know, the, the thing about Shatner's career, okay, he had such an illustrious career before he even stepped on the Desilu lot for his, his very first scene as, as Captain Kirk. Uh, obviously, in addition to the things you mentioned, he was in the, the classic uh, film Judgment at Nuremberg with the likes of Spencer Tracy and Judy Garland. He obviously, you all know, he was in the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet episode of The Twilight Zone, but he also did the Twilight Zone episode called Nick of Time. He was on- By the way, I, I love Nick of Time. I think it's a really good one, and I don't think it gets enough attention as Terror at 20,000 Feet. Well, well, it's I, I agree. It's a very, very good episode. But, you know, if you're going to put those two episodes back, sure. you know, alongside each other, obviously Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. It was directed by Richard Donner. I mean, it's such a classic episode. But he also was in the Cold Hands, Warm Heart episode of The Outer Limits, which ironically was about a Project Vulcan uh, a spaceship going to Venus. He was, like you said, he was on Broadway, Shakespearean trained actor. Uh, and when you think about just the, the dramatic uh, inflection that William Shatner put into his performance. All of that training came to bear. I mean, so many things happened to fortunately pave the way for Shatner to sit in that chair. First thing, like we talked about, Jeffrey Hunter didn't want to do it. Uh, Lloyd Bridges didn't want to do it. They didn't want Jack Lord because he wanted ownership of the show. And also at the time in 1965, Shatner was filming a, uh, a series called For the People, which never made it past the first half of the first season. It was canceled. 
And because it was canceled, Shatner was, was available to shoot the pilot. And the other, another performance that Shatner did in the early 1960s that is often overlooked, but is still very, very much appreciated and praised was his appearance as a, as a racist bigot in the Roger Corman film, The Intruder. It is a fantastic movie. It is a sensational performance from Shatner. But when you, when you just look at Shatner's performance throughout the original series, here was a guy who had a lot of energy. He, he commanded with passion. He, he, was, he was irresistible. He could sell ice to an Eskimo. He was, uh, I, I hate to use the word infectious at a time when we're in a pandemic, but Shatner's performance was infectious. I, I, I immediately, when I was young, grew to uh, admire and idolize this character. Uh, he was so aspirational. I wanted to be like him. I still want to be like Captain Kirk. He, to me, is the reason that I became a Star Trek fan. I mean, all the other talk about like, oh, it was about a positive depiction of the future, but it was Shatner's performance. He was a great role model. He still is a great role model. Shatner is the reason that I'm a Star Trek fan. I, I, it's, he's so powerful. That's funny. I heard, I heard years and years ago, so, someone said uh, that all men live between two poles, the aspiration of Captain Kirk and Homer Simpson. And that's it. It's just sort of we're trying to get to the the captain's chair, but often we just sit, fall into the couch and watch TV with a beer, you know. But his he is so dynamic, and it's so interesting because he is like a lot of the our big three people: Nimoy, Shatner, and DeForest Kelly. They are all working actors who are going from gig to gig on this TV show to that TV show. They're doing some theater. They're doing occasional roles in film. They're always good. And suddenly they get this break to be stars. And it's funny, you, you mentioned Judgment at Nuremberg. I had never seen it. Oh. I had kind of avoided it. I, I, mean, I don't know if you had this experience growing up Jewish, but I got pretty inundated with Holocaust material as a very little kid. And I tended to avoid it a bit. And then we finally did that movie on the cinephiles. And first of all, it's an amazing movie. And second of all, Shatner just jumps off the screen every yeah, time. He he's on, every He's so charismatic. And it just feels like he was waiting for Captain Kirk to come along. You, you, you know, know? It, it, when you look at an actor, you know, there was a period of time, obviously, after Star Trek was canceled throughout the 70s, when all the actors from that show had a hard time. They were typecast as their characters. And and Shatner definitely was. And he made it past that when he got to the 80s and he was doing like T.J. Hooker and he was doing the Star Trek movies. And then into the 90s when he was doing comedic performances like the Priceline commercials. Right. And then he got uh, Boston Legal uh, out after doing the practice and he won two Emmys finally. But still to this day, when you hear the name William Shatner, you hear the name Captain Kirk. And I think around the 90s, the early 90s, Shatner started to be like, oh, okay, fine. You know, he just went with it. And if you're going to be associated with any character for eternity, you could do worse than Captain Kirk. Yeah. I mean, if anything, you can't do better than Captain yeah. Kirk. And when you watch Shatner in Star Trek, in the very first episode that he filmed, in the very first scene that he had on screen with Spock in that briefing room or the rec room when they're playing three-dimensional chess, 
right there at that moment from act one, scene one, William Shatner had Captain Kirk down. He was born to play this guy. And there's so many elements of where no man has gone before, where the series isn't quite there yet. But one thing that was there from, from the very first second and, and he held on to that throughout the course of the series and the films up until his final performance in uh, Star Trek Generations is that William Shatner had this guy down. He was and is and will always be Captain Kirk because he was born to play this guy. 100% agree. So let's talk about how this came to be. So we have this idea for, you know, we're going to do a second pilot. So they bring three property, three scripts to NBC. They are Omega Glory, which is which season does that end up? In? That was the second to the last episode filmed for season two. And part of the reason they talked about doing this was this idea, brilliant idea from Gene Roddenberry of the parallel worlds theory, which means that we're going to go to another planet, but for some reason that planet is going to be just like one particular era or of Earth. And, and A, it's a great idea because it saves you money on makeup because you don't have to invent all these aliens. It saves you money on sets because you could just use the back lot. And, <laughs> and it allows you to do a whole bunch of different kinds of stories. So that was one they presented. Mud's Women is one they presented. I'm really glad that was not the pilot. <laughs> Can you imagine? Terrible. Wait, wait, Steve. Can you imagine if Mud's Women was the second pilot that they went with, and then they showed that to NBC after they thought after they thought that the cage was too cerebral and too too sexual, and then you're having space hookers? We would we would not be here today. We would not be here because Star uh, Trek would not have sold. <laughs> and so they settle on where no man has gone before, written by Samuel Peoples, and it's uh, directed by James Goldstone. They estimated it's going to take nine days to shoot and desi lu who because the cage had gone over budget and over schedule said you get seven days and they shot it in eight days they took a ninth day just to do pickups and and things like that but they once again like with the cage shot at desi lu's culver city studios and where the cage cost over six hundred thousand dollars to produce where no man has gone before cost a little over three hundred thousand wow. dollars to produce. Now, now of course that's about half of what the cage cost, but it was still a lot more expensive than the average Star Trek episode cost, which was about uh, around two hundred thousand dollars, maybe a little bit less. Some cost a little more, but you know the other thing is that they had the sets already done, they had the Enterprise already built, they had some of the costumes already done. And uh, they had the stage that they they had used for Talos Four, and they just reworked it a little bit for uh, Delta Vega. So when they started filming Where No Man Has Gone Before on July 19th, 1965, there was a lot going on in the next eight days, especially when it came to Vietnam. For instance, on July 19th, U.S. Armed Forces came under attack about 100 miles north of Saigon uh, by Viet Cong soldiers. And then on July 24th, U.S. pilots encountered surface-to-air missiles for the first time in the escalating war. And then on July 25th, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan caused a real ruckus at the Newport Folk Festival. Oh, that's he, when this is? Wow. Yes, he plugged in his guitar sang like a rolling stone 
And a lot of people in that audience were very upset and felt betrayed by the folk hero. And at one point during his performance, someone in the audience called out Judas. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine Through the bumps of dime in your prime Then you People call, saying beware, doll, you're bound to fall You thought they were all Then you it's, it's a huge moment in music history because I also think Pete Seeger runs up and unplugs him. Like, oh. like kills the power in the middle of the performance to stop there from being electric guitars playing at a folk festival. Well, <laughs> I had no idea that was at the same time. Well, also around that time, the Beatles had released their fifth studio album in the UK, which was Help. It was also around this time that the first uh, the second movie by the Beatles, the one that was in color called Help was released in theaters. And about a month later, the Beatles played the biggest concert ever, up to that point anyway, at Shea Stadium in front of 55,000 screaming fans. Wow. And, and, the, and this episode was released on September 22nd of 1966. So it's a while between when it's shot and when it's released. And here's what's going on in the world then. The number one song is Sunshine Superman by Donovan. <laughs> um, uh, Rolling Stones played on El uh, Ed Sullivan. There are two big television premieres at that time. One is The Monkees, which my guess is you watched as much as I did. Of course. Uh, <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> it's funny. I've watched a little bit of it recently. I tried to show it to my kid. That is a weird show. <laughs> it's a very, very strange show. Listen, if you watch the movie Help, which opened the summer before, about a year before The Monkees premiered, it is clearly obvious yeah. where the monkeys got their inspiration because yeah. when i saw help for the first time you know i had already seen the monkeys tv show and i went oh okay now i know where the monkeys came from for sure the other big show that premiered right at the same week is mission impossible premiered the same week as Star Trek. And that is, you know, we we're talking about the differences in what television was like, because the top shows on TV at this time are Batman, Bewitched, I Dream of Genie, Gilligan's Island, and Lost in Space. Those are the top shows. And, and you could see Star Trek and Mission Impossible are a complete change from those. This is one other little bit of trivia that I saw of what was going on. The poorest attendance ever at a Yankees game happened I think the day I think the day before this Star Trek episode 413 people came to see the Yankees play the White Sox in Yankee Stadium who won the White Sox four to one okay that's good trivia oh by the way Steve you you mentioned Mission Impossible you can't mention that Mission Impossible and Star Trek premiered at the same time without mentioning that Mission Impossible and Star Trek were both produced by Desilu Studios. So Lucille Ball Studio, yeah. I love Lucy. Her studio goes out on a limb to produce not just one, but two shows that are so complex and so uh, uh, groundbreaking and trailblazing in completely different ways. And Desi Lu Studios produced both of them. So hats off to Lucille Ball, I'll tell you. My And my understanding is she was really involved. Like De Desi at this point was drinking a lot and he was not going out much. And Lucy was, I mean, she was, she's an amazing person. But the thing about where no man has gone before is that there are actually two edits that exist of this episode. The version that was shown 
to NBC that sold the series was not the version that we saw in September of 1966. And Alexander Courage, who composed the score for The Cage, returned to compose the score for Where No Man Has Gone Before. Now, when this episode was incorporated into the series, you had the familiar TV series theme song, but when it was shown to brass at NBC, it had a different opening. It had a, a sort of a different theme and there was a different motif that ran throughout the episode. And the version actually for people who want to see that version, the unreleased version, it actually exists as a bonus feature on the season three Blu-ray release of the original series. And I highly uh, encourage you to watch that. And Shatner's monologue, Space the Final Frontier, that did not exist when they filmed this episode. William Shatner had a very different introduction. And if I can just read it, uh, it was Enterprise Log, Captain James T. Kirk commanding. We are leaving that vast cloud of stars and planets which we call our galaxy. Behind us, Earth, Mars, Venus, even our sun are specks of dust. A question. What is out there in the black void beyond? Until now, our mission has been that of space law regulation, contact with Earth colonies, and investigation of alien life. But now, a new task. A probe out into where, where no, no man, man has gone, gone before. before. Would you like to go where no man has gone before? Let's boldly go where no man has gone before on Enterprise Incidents. Let's get right into it with the prologue. Take it away. So it starts off, strangely enough, it's very similar to the cage, which is we have a distress signal. And then we have this crazy zoom, just like in, in the cage, we kind of flew into the bridge. Now we flew out of the monitor, just what you mentioned, three-dimensional chess between Spock and Kirk. You'll move, Captain. First of all, the idea of three-dimensional chess is awesome. And other than, and, and yes, Spock does look a little bit jaundiced. <laughs> particularly this is where high definition is sort of a problem because you could really see that makeup and it's not the best but i think there there is they nail these characters so much we start off with spock saying i'll have you checkmated your next move and then kirk laughs and a big <laughs> smile and says have i ever mentioned you play a very irritating game of chess mr spock i have a question for you scott yes is kirk irritated Kirk is is in savoring the moment. Exactly. He is savoring the moment. So 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 here's the thing, Steve. Like not only do we see that Shatner has Kirk down, but we see a lot of things just in these first few seconds. You see that that Shatner is clearly comfortable playing this guy, he knows what he's doing. You have that he's that he's got uh, a levity to himself. He's got a sense of humor to himself, and he's got a, 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 a there's a there's a joy to to Kirk. There's a, he could tell already that he loves being the captain, and you also have, again, this is lightning in a bottle, Steve. Right there at that moment, the amazing chemistry between William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, the volley, the banter, the playful jabbing at each other, irritating. Ah, yes. One of your Earth emotions. 
they did that for the next 30 years. Uh, and and they had it down from the very first moment they were on screen together. Well, and first of all, you contrast this with P- Captain Pike, who's like, I don't know if I want to be the captain. I'm wiped out. And Kirk is just so happy. And, and, and this is the thing that I think is that I think by some magic, they figured out something about Kirk's character right in this moment that we're going to see forever. And it really really because what I th- I'm picturing what has been happening in this game, because as you know, everyone's watched this probably many times is that is that Spock thinks he's going to win. He thinks he has Kirk just where he wants him. But in fact, Kirk is about to win. And so I go like, why is he saying you play a very irritating game of chess? And I think that Kirk has been pretending to be upset for the last 10 moves because he's been luring in Mr. Spock because what we're going to hear in Corbinite Maneuver, not chess, Mr. Spock, poker, Mm -hmm. is that Kirk is all about playing the system. He's all about that strategy that, and we established that Spock is smarter than Kirk. There's no way Kirk can keep up with Spock on all sorts of things intellectually, but Kirk has other skills and we see them right in this scene. Certain you don't know what irritation is. And the other thing we see and hear is, is already in the first two or three minutes of this, of the second pilot of this first pilot with Shatner is we, we get some development into Spock's character. In fact, one of my ancestors married a human female. Terrible, having bad blood like that. I mean, that's the sort of jabbing that one of the many qualities that define their relationship, this playful banner between us, between them. And, and here's the thing, Steve, you talk about, about Jeffrey Hunter's Christopher Pike, how he was burned out. He didn't want to be the captain anymore. The other thing about Jeffrey Hunter that we talked about in the, in our, in our last episode was that he, he was kind of stiff. He, he, he was rigid. He was yeah. rigid. And Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy had remarked over the years that it was a little hard to play alongside Jeffrey Hunter because Jeffrey Hunter didn't give him anything to go with. So Nimoy felt like he had to kind of draw it out of him, had to overcompensate in some cases. But he said when William Shatner came onto that set, he was a ball of energy and, and Nimoy was relieved that, that he was now going to have a sparring partner that brought so much to the table that all he would have to do is react from him and worry about his own performance because Shatner just knew exactly what he was doing. It, it, it's so amazing how much is in the scene. I mean, this is like a, a one minute scene, if that, and yet we've gotten Kirk as the strategist, the poker player, the manipulator we've got, and we've gotten what you said, which is about Spock's heritage. And we've got this other thing. Oh, one of your earth emotions, because now Spock has taken those elements from the number one character in the pilot of being the unemotional one. And we even get something else, which is what I love, which is when Kirk shows that he wins Spock has a reaction and Kirk says you certain you don't know what irritation is and this is like so central to Spock's character forever which is the difference between having no emotions and controlling emotions and this because clearly he is irritated he might be pretending he's not having any emotions, but he is. And this is something when, when Spock is good, it's always right on that edge between those things. He's not a robot. He has 
character to him, and we get it right at this very first scene. Well, that, that's the thing that made Leonard Nimoy's performance as Spock so great was, like you said, he's not a character without emotions. He's a character constantly keeping his emotions suppressed. And in those moments, in those episodes, when he's, he's losing the battle, when he's losing the battle and the emotions are coming forth no matter what, like in a mock time, uh, mm-hmm. those are like, I think a mock time is one of the very greatest performances Leonard Nimoy ever gave as Spock because he was so, it, it was such a struggle for Spock to, to keep those emotions in check, to keep his human side subdued and, and keep his Vulcan side uh, prominent. But this, this scene, this prologue, again, for a, a most, most TV series pilots are not good. Like, cause yeah. they're, they're, there's so much that they're trying to do. There's so much they're trying to set up, but here's this, this pilot episode of a, of a series, a science fiction series that had never been done. And it has stood the test of time for 56 years because, yep. you know, we are, we are in uh, uh, the, the 55th year of Star Trek's existence, but it actually, this episode was filmed in 65. Uh, and we are also, I have to say, all this talk about William Shatner, Steve, this year marks what will be the 90th birthday of wow. the man himself. William Shatner will be 90 years old in March and, and he is with us, sharp as a tack and God bless him. <laughs> well, happy birthday, Captain Kirk. And, and and right now, because we have this distress signal, we go off to the transporter room to beam aboard this object. And, and we see Scotty for our first time. And he is not wearing a red shirt, which is just sort of strange. <laughs> um, and, and they beam over this object. And then it blinks green. And then we get this heavy, ominous, serious music. And this flash the bridge. Put all decks on the alert. In this one moment where I go like, wow, that's a lot of reaction for a box starting to blink green, (laughs) but it's okay. And that takes us into our very first real Star Trek title sequence. The the title sequence that we saw with this episode, which was a third episode that had aired for some reason, I don't know why they did this because when they showed the man trap and Charlie X, you heard Shatner's famous space, the final frontier monologue. But when they showed where no man has gone before, they didn't include that, and I never understood why. But for the special edition reissues with the remastered effects, they reinstated Kirk's monologue into the opening credits score. And you, and you know what? To honor it, let's hear it right now. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. We're, we're in the hallway and we get to meet Gary Mitchell, Gary Lockwood, who, uh, you know what? You and I discussed a whole bunch on the Cinephiles when we talked about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Talk about being in the zone in 1966 because... It was around the time he was he had filmed his scenes for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And and then he also films the, the second pilot for, for Star Trek. And the thing that's great about Gary Lockwood's Gary Mitchell, Lieutenant Commander Gary Mitchell, he's not just a crew member of the Enterprise. Okay. 
that would have been dramatic enough to have a crew member of the Enterprise go through the changes that Gary Mitchell goes through throughout this episode. But the fact that he and Kirk are longtime friends is what makes this episode resonate on an emotional level and turns this episode into a science fiction parallel of a Shakespearean tragedy. The, the, the gut-wrenching decision that Kirk has to make to save his ship at the expense of his friend Gary. And we'll get to that. But uh, we're establishing right in, in the uh, turbo lift there. Hold it, Jim. Getting into shape? <laughs> yeah, well, I figured you went on the bridge. Kelso's voice sounded a little nervous. I love that Carrie walks up and says, oh, how'd the game go? And Spock says, he played most illogically. His next move should have been the rook. And Gary looks over at Kirk, who does the throat slitting gesture. <laughs> yeah, It's yeah. just so, because I believe that this has happened before. Um, the other thing I think about, I think, this is my feeling, and this is how good performances and good scripts and good direction works. The impression I get is that Gary Mitchell is Captain Kirk's best friend on the Enterprise. Eventually, that will be Mr. Spock, but that isn't Mr. Spock yet. His closest, longest relationship is Gary Mitchell. Um, by the way, when they get on the turbo lift, there is a very little, nice little trick of filmmaking because they get on in this corridor and they get off on the bridge and it's all one shot. Well, how do they do that? Well, when they get on, looking out through the doors of the turbo lift, they have a gray, it's just a gray wall and they close the doors and crew members move the gray wall because it was really always on the bridge all the time. So when they open it up, now we come onto the bridge. Oh, there you go. Hollywood magic. There you go. Right there the in science fiction, 1965. Simplest magic in the world. <laughs> and there, you know, there's some odd things in this scene there's people that are kind of why is there a woman standing directly behind gary mitchell for some of this scene there's all sorts of odd things but one thing that happens is a whole bunch of people come in including mr sulu we have george takei george takei come in um and i love and this is just an amazing bit of casting that he plays a physicist because asian americans at that time you know if you look at one of the other top shows right now is Bonanza, and Bonanza has Hop Singh, which is the classic stereotype of an Asian American, and that is not what Mr. Sulu is. Um, and we have, of course, Sally Kellerman playing Dr. Damer. Psychiatry, Captain. My assignment is to study crew reaction in emergency conditions. She would go on to uh, uh, gain even bigger fame as uh, Hot Lips Houlihan in the Robert Altman classic MASH. And you also have playing Dr. Piper, Paul Fix, uh, you know, uh, who was good in the episode, but and he was no DeForest Kelly. He was no I, DeForest Kelly. I think Philip Boyce is a way better doctor than Paul Fix was. Yeah, like, I agree. And, and my understanding is, is that Roddenberry wanted DeForest Kelly the whole time. That he wanted him for the cage, couldn't get him. He wanted him for this, couldn't get him. And finally, he gets him uh, after this. Um and then Gary says this weird sort of... Well, improving the breed, Doctor. Is that your line? Which doesn't make any sense at all because she's a psychiatrist. I don't quite understand what that means. And she comes right back at him with... I heard that's more your specialty, Commander. Line included. And then he turns to he turns to Navigator Lee Kelso, played by uh, Paul Carr, uh, you know, walking freezer unit. And she heard it. So there's, there's a little bit of ribbing going on there. Also a little bit of flirting. Because well, you know that these two are going to end up together, although not in ways that you would see in a romantic comedy. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The, the older I get, the less I like Gary Mitchell. And I don't, I'm not talking about post-powers Gary Mitchell. I don't think Gary Mitchell was the best guy. 
I think he was a bit of a problematic person, but, but I really like that is that he came on with a character. He start, he is not like military. He's not, he is funny. He's flirtatious. He is somewhat aggressive. He, he treats Jim Kirk, his superior officer, very differently than anybody else on the ship does. I think they establish so much with his character. Orders, counter orders, repeated urgent requests for information from the ship's computer records for anything concerning ESP and human beings. Extrasensory perception. This is a classic terrible way to get some exposition out is that Kirk asked Dr. Daner what, you know, about ESP. And she says, oh yeah, I tested really high. He's like, no, no, I want to know what you know about ESP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is, but, that is, but- but Steve, the thing about the scene where Spock is transcribing the uh, uh, flight recorder from the Valiant, Nimoy's performance in this scene is he's great. The way he is pausing, the way he's, you know, uh, he, he's circling back to, to react to William Shatner. Uh, and they, they were so great in the way that they reacted to each other, the way they, 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 they visually just bounced off each other. And Nimoy is, is, is transcribing this and he's, and again, it's just exposition, but it works and uh, orders counters. I sound like the captain just gave an order to destroy his own ship. And then Mitchell gives that reaction shot, but uh, the mystery of it, that this ship that's a hundred years old uh, left this thing behind and we're hearing what happened to this old starship. uh, It's, it's great tension. It's great suspense as they uh, then decide to... We're leaving the galaxy, Mr. Mitchell. Ahead, warp factor one. As they head towards the energy barrier. And it is the opposite choice from the cage because almost exactly the same thing happens in the cage. We have a distress signal and Pike goes, nah, let's not go. And Kirk, <laughs> and Kirk goes, yes, we just, the ship self-destructed. I mean, it sounds dangerous and scary. And Kirk goes, yeah, that's our job. Let's go. In August of 1966, Gene Roddenberry went to a science fiction convention, like the World Science Fiction Convention, I think it was called, to talk about Star Trek. He brought costumes and had you know people modeling the costumes, and he brought the, the episode where no man has gone before. Now, one thing we talked about before, Steve, is try to put it into context try to remember that when they filmed where no man has gone before and when they, when they showed the first couple episodes of star Trek, no one had ever seen anything like this. No one had ever produced a series quite like star Trek. So when you get to this science fiction convention in which people are seeing a real to real film of this episode of where no man has gone before, you know, I read uh, in the book, The Star Trek Compendium, written by Alan Asherman, his account of what, oh my God, you are holding it up. Dude, are we meant to be hosting this podcast <laughs> together? Oh my gosh, Steve, for everybody listening, what you have to know is just as I mentioned, the Star Trek Compendium, Steve, from his home, held it up to the camera to show me that it was right by his computer. This is why <laughs> Scott and Steve are the best Star Trek podcast hosts you are ever going to hear. But it was in the Star Trek compendium that I read the account of what happened when those science fiction fans saw where no man has gone before for the very first time. And when the enterprise hit the energy barrier, everybody in the audience, their eyes just 
just widened like saucers because science fiction and television had never been depicted in this way. And this was cinematic production value for what was going to be a week-to-week television series. And everybody just went absolutely crazy. And also, this was a color reel-to-reel film that, that Roddenberry had with him. And he also had a black and white version of the cage. And he also showed that too. But man, can you imagine like being at a science fiction convention and seeing this for the first time with a shared audience? Wow. Can imagine. Um, by the way, one thing that I'm glad they jettisoned is a Spock yelling out orders. Deflectors, full intensity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Damage control thing. reports, all stations. Yeah. I'm, re- I'm really glad we got rid of that. But they, yeah, as you say, they head out and through this barrier and then all hell breaks loose. There's lightning, there's explosions. Gary gets hit by something. Dr. Daner gets hit by something. And we finally get out. And this moment is such good science fiction and such good television cliffhanger. Kirk goes to Gary and says, are you all right? And we hear his voice and he says, I'm a little weak for some reason, Jim. I feel all right now. And then he turns and then we see those glowing eyes. We see those glowing eyes. And here's what's great about the cliffhanger for act one. He opens his eyes the frame actually freezes, mm-hmm. but we still move in. We move in on his eyes. And as the scene fades to black, the eyes are still glowing in the black for just a, about a second or two longer. Director James Goldstone, he directed this episode. He also directed What a Little Girl's Made Of. And James Goldstone did such an amazing job with where no man has gone before putting that first act cliffhanger to have it end in that way with that chilling music. It was scary. And you're watching it today. It is still very, very effective and just other touches that he put on Gary as the, the uh, ravages of his powers affected his body. We'll get into that, but that is an amazing cliffhanger. Captain's log star date 1312.9. Ship's condition, heading back on impulse power only. Main engines burned out. The ship's space warp ability, gone. Earth bases, which were only days away, are now years in the distance. And we're still starting to do research on ESP, and and right away we get the conflict between Dr. Daner and Spock, because all the other people that died, that got hit by this thing that she and Gary got hit by, had high ESP ratings. Espers are simply people with flashes of insight. And Spock comes right at her about this. They're not also those who seem to see through solid objects, cause fires to start spontaneously. Um, And then we go to Gary's in bed, in sickbay. And we have to point out that in sick, this design of having above his bed, all the vital signs on the readout, that actually influences real medical technology going forward. It is a brilliant concept. Captain Kirk goes in to talk to him. And before Mitchell even lifts up his head to see who's walking in the door, he says, Hello, Jim. Right there, immediately, immediately, we are starting to see the effect of his new powers. I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, it's so important. And the one of the things this show does so well is the very slow, methodical 
evolution of his powers. That first one is very subtle and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is, you know, for any screenwriter who's out there, it's hard to do to get that pace exactly right. But initially he just wants to get back to duty. And he has this, you know, this exchange talking to Kirk, not not as captain to lieutenant commander, but friend to friend, talking yeah. about the old days. I've been worried about you ever since that night on Denim 4. <laughs> yeah, she was Nova, that one. Not nearly as many after effects this time. You, you know, you see the warmth, you see the history, you feel it. You can feel that there is a history between these two guys. But there's also like a like they were they were competitors too you know what i mean like they were great friends but they were also uh, there was also a competitive rivalry between the two of them hey man i remember you back at the academy a stack of books with legs the first thing i ever heard from an upperclassman was watch out for lieutenant kirk in his class you either think or sink <laughs> that wasn't that bad man. but then he makes the comment if i hadn't aimed that little blonde lab technician at you you what? You planned that? I outlined her whole campaign for her. I almost married her. Now, who is that little blonde lab technician? Oh, are you saying that that's Carol Marcus? That is exactly who I am saying, sir. I never, ever occurred to me. <laughs> oh, my God. That is awesome. That is absolute. Now, look, when this was filmed in 1965, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan was like, what? Like, that was such a long way off. In fact, Spacey was such a long way off. But how convenient that B.B. Besh, who played Carol Marcus in Star Trek II, had blonde hair. They had a kid named David Marcus, which makes this setup. You know, the, the, this, this is where, where, where fan, fan influence wound up influencing canon in some ways because the speculation that that blonde lab technician that – Gary Mitchell is referring to uh, is in fact Carol Marcus, and for a series that like like the original series, which wasn't really big on continuity, you know, they did it a little bit, but to kind of draw that correlation between where no man has gone before and the wrath of Khan, it's just it's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. You know, is that documented in canon that that is Carol Marcus, or is that? It's not documented in canon, but it's about as close to canon as you're going to get. Because if you ask any fan of the original series, who is who is Mitchell referring to, that blonde uh, technician, everyone will go, oh, that was Carol Marcus. It's, well, it's I, such I, common knowledge. And not by me, though, apparently. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is now. <laughs> now it is. Um, it, it's funny. I think about their relationship, and I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but I think Gary Mitchell... I don't know if you've had this friend, but I think he's the friend that always is a lot of fun and gets you into trouble. That gets you into places, into bars, into the situation where you're like, oh, this could turn bad. That's oh, who I, I think I Gary Mitchell is. I, uh, I agree. I also think that that if you know when you re, if you really think about the relationship between these two guys, you know, they weren't going out to the bars together. Gary Mitchell was going to the bars, but uh, James T. Kirk was studying. He was. He was, he wanted to be, you know, he was only in his, he was in his early thirties when he became captain of the enterprise, because in the deadly years, he says that he's 34 years old. Right. So the deadly years took place in the third, uh, well, it was in the second season, but it was during the third year of the voyage of the enterprise. So if he's 34 in a, de a deadly years, then he must've been 32 
mm. when he was captain in Where No Man Has Gone Before. I know I'm reading really into this. No, but that's, that's good. No, that's it. good. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing, and I think it's really important for the where we're going to go. I don't think Gary Mitchell is nearly as good a person as Jim Kirk. He does some questionable things. I think he did questionable things in the past. I think the walking freezer unit is, it's not just that it's, that that seems sexist looking at it today. It's intentionally supposed to be this guy's a little bit of a jerk. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, I agree with, I do agree with that. I never thought about it to the point where I, I could quantify it like this, but hearing you talk about it, I completely agree with the, your assessment of their relationship for sure. Um, and what we find out is his brain is working at a whole other level. He's getting all sorts of ideas. He's reading Spinoza, which now seems pretty childish. Kirk says to him, I'm going to ask Dr. Dana to keep you under observation for a while. With almost 100 women on board, you can do better than that, friend captain. Consider it a challenge. And Gary Mitchell says uh, that doesn't seem very friendly. And then there's this moment as Jim is starting to go. He says, didn't I say you'd better. And his voice booms and then kirk turns around like in shock and then in a normal voice be good to me that moment is chilling it is chilling because again we are seeing the powers that gary mitchell has are a lot further along than even gary realizes but gary mitchell knows enough of what's going on to already toy with kirk by giving him that that tease of his voice, of that echo, that godlike, uh, you know, he sounded like this powerful god for a second. And Kirk respond, Kirk, you know, William Shatner's response to that, his reaction, is 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 so perfect, and it's it's so subtle, and you know, it's often overlooked. But William Shatner's reaction to that, he doesn't know whether to laugh or to be shocked. And Shatner, for a split second, raises a smile. But then he goes, thinks to himself, what the hell was that? He was kind of spooked. One of the things that's great about Captain Kirk is he is a great leader. And that as a person who's been a director and, and been in leadership positions, like there's so many things that he does that are subtle, that are so important to leadership. And one of them is he's extremely observant, but he doesn't act or talk on everything he observes all the time he waits he listens and then he makes the decision and that's what and like in the next scene because this scene is chilling the next scene even more chilling because kirk visits spock on the bridge who we now find out has been monitoring gary and they're watching gary read and gary's reading faster and faster and spock says is that gary mitchell the one you used to know and they watch him and Kirk thinks, and he says, "Put a twenty-four hour watch in the sick bay." That is a huge choice. And then this, la I think, this is the scariest moment in the whole show, which is that they're watching him read, and they're watching him read, and the music is building, and slowly but surely, Gary Mitchell turns and looks right into camera, looks right at Jim Kirk, who just said, "Put a guard on." Him. Oh, that that is an amazing scene, and it is a chilling scary scene it is very effective because you know spock walks away from the monitor at that moment and kirk is still standing there and kirk continues to watch gary mitchell and gary turns to look right at the camera right at kirk and uh he, they've they've got a they've got a problem they've got yeah. a freaking problem on their hands with this person what do we do with them 
And we're back in sickbay and in comes Dr. Daner and she, and they talk about the walking freezer unit comment. Um, and then we discover that Gary Mitchell, not only are his readouts all good, but he can control them. He makes them go up. And then he says, Hey, watch this doc. And the, the vitals go to zero and he dies. So, so Daner kind of freaks out. She's like, Oh my God, Garrett, stop, stop it. And then he comes back to life. And then you start to hear the thumping, of the medical scanner because his heartbeat is going again. And Gary's reaction is what's happening to me. Like, like he, he's like, this is exciting. Uh, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a great scene because the impact is finally starting to hit him. She, she wants to test his memory. He's basically saying, I remember every single thing I read. And she goes, well, what about this? And she holds up what I love is basically a floppy disk. Like, and again, Star Trek technology actually is genuinely influential on real technology. And she quotes from a poem. I love his wings, slender feathered things with grace and hip swept curve and tapered tip. And it's, he says, that's a very erotic poem. One of the, one of the most passionate love sonnets of the last couple of centuries. The poem is actually a poem written by Gene Roddenberry about his plane in World War II. Wow. <laughs> that is what that poem comes from. And then at that moment, you know, talk about nick of time. Lee Kelso walks in the door, and then and then yeah, and then Kelso enters, and he jokes around with him a little bit, and then says, "You better check the starboard impulse packs. Those points have about decayed to lead." Kelso thinks he's joking. Yeah, whatever. I'm not joking, Lee. You activate those packs, and you'll blow the whole impulse deck. He snapped at Kelso, and Kelso was shocked. Like, who do you think you're talking to? And how the hell do you know this? So Kelso was a little spooked and freaked out because like, who is this guy? He's never, you he never talked to me like that before. But when Kelso walks out the door, Mitchell says, he's a fool. He'd seen those points and he hadn't noticed their condition. And then Mitchell puts his head back on his pillow with a big smile and says in a hushed tone, the image of what he'd seen was still in his mind. Wow. Now we know that Gary is reading minds. And then we get a classic Star Trek scene. We don't have we don't have Dr. McCoy, but it is still a scene of Mr. Spock being the hard, logical one. And now it's Dr. Daner arguing against him because Gary was right about the points. And Spock says, Our subject is not Gary Mitchell. Our concern is rather what he is mutating into. And she is shocked by his lack of emotion, but she's even more shocked that Kirk, who's supposed to be his friend, is not defending him. It is my duty, whether pleasant or unpleasant, to listen to the reports, observations, even speculations on any subject that might affect the safety of this vessel. And it's my science officer's duty to see that I'm provided with that. And this is the thing about it, is that it's not that Kirk doesn't have emotions. It's not that he doesn't care a lot about his friend Gary. And we'll see that later on. But right now, his job is to be the captain. And I'm telling you, there's so much about leadership. When I was directing a film, there were all sorts of disasters and all sorts of problems. And the, and the director has to keep their heads straight and focus on what is important. And what is important is his ship and his crew. And that is more important with his friendship. And, and I think that's just so key. And Shatner's delivery, Shatner's performance in the scene is another example of why he was the perfect captain. Yes. He is in full control of that room. He is just calling people out, calling people to task giving orders and, you know, coming down on Daner. Like you didn't think that it was worth mentioning that he was exhibiting some of these powers. Again, this 
feels this this feels like Star Trek to me. And we hear that Gary has been messing with controls on the ship. We hear Sulu give a great speech about how his powers are increasing geometrically. That is like having a penny, doubling it every day. In a month, you'll be a millionaire. And Spock says uh, he will soon be so powerful that we can't control him. Well, at this point, Kirk says, you know, there'll be no discussion of this with the crew and he, everybody's dismissed. But Spock sticks around and is, is challenging Kirk, saying, There's a planet a few light days away from here, Delta Vega. It has a lithium cracking station. We may be able to adapt some of its power packs to our engines. And if we can't, we'll be trapped in orbit there. We haven't enough power to blast back out. It is the only possible way to get Mitchell off this ship. If you mean strand Mitchell there, I won't do it. It's a great moment in their relationship in terms of, of watching the evolution of these characters and, and the two of them together. Will you try for one moment to feel, at least act like you've got a heart? We're talking about Gary. The captain of the Valiant probably felt the same way, and he waited too long to make his decision. And Kirk knows the decision he has to make, and Spock is telling him, this is, this is, this is what you need to do. And Kirk knows this, and he says, Set course for Delta Vega. But this is exactly what I'm talking about, is that he cares about Gary. He's upset about what Spock is saying. It is so exactly what Spock's characters are going to become. It's like, I'm going to tell him the hard truth because he needs that. And Kirk needs Spock to do that. And then he has his emotional reaction. He has his, you know, mourning for his friend. And then he makes the decision that the captain has to make. Well, that is the end of Act 2. And that brings us to Act 3 where the Enterprise is slowly approaching Delta Vega. Uh, the, the ship is still in, in, a, in a very, very bad way, but at least they made it to Delta Vega because it has a lithium cracking station. And if they can repair the, the, the bridge and get the uh, lithium crystals going, then they can establish more power again. Uh, Gary is still in sickbay. Gary Mitchell is still in sickbay, but this is where he starts to really become a threat uh, and starts to realize how powerful uh, he is becoming. He's still at sick day. He, he, he gets this cup of water without even getting out of bed. He uses his, his powers to, to move the cup, push the water spout, and get the full cup of water. When Kirk and Spock show up with Dr. Daner, and Mitchell knows what they are planning to do. And he says, Sometimes I feel there's nothing I couldn't do time some people think that makes me a monster don't they jim by this point they're too late and they know it and that's why they have phasers and even they will not help oh well they'll help them get them down to the planet but he's he's just getting more powerful by the second well and a great directorial choice is we see him use his powers to get that cup of water and then he sends the cup back and kirk catches it and it's just a great little small choice and i love that kirk asks what would you do in my place? Probably just what Mr. Spock is thinking now. Kill me. Well, you can. It's a great bit of screenwriting. Kirk takes a step forward, and he gets hit with some electric shock superpower thing, and then Spock gets hit by it. Stop it, Gary! And he knows about the plan to beam him down on Delta Vega and strand him there, and he says, you know, this is where we're getting into the full crazy now. I'm not sure yet just what kind of a world I can use. Use? 
right? So he's already thinking big. He's already thinking big. And, and the enterprise is too small for him now. Yeah. And as he gets up, he's caught off guard. Fortunately, you know, Kirk jumps into action because he is a man of action and they're able to, uh, to get Mitchell uh, off guard and, and get him sedated so they can get him into the transporter room and beam him down to Delta Vega. And when we get down to Delta Vega, this lithium cracking uh, uh, plant, if you will, that is totally deserted. And, and just, you know, James Goldstone really did a great job just establishing just the, the solitude of it. No one's around. You hear the wind, that great matte painting. There's not a soul on this planet but us. Nobody but us chickens, Doctor. And they stick Gary into the brig. And this is the first time we see like that force field thing we'll see in many other episodes of Star Trek. And Kirk tells Kelso. The fuel bins, Lee, could they be detonated from here? A destruct switch? I guess I could wire one up right there. Do it. Because we might have to blow this place up. And we get Gary in the brig and Daner's on the outside. And Gary says, my friend, James Kirk. And he reminds him that he saved his life. Remember those rodent things on Dimeris? The poison darts they threw? I took one meant for you. And almost died. And as we see, as we see Gary Mitchell standing, you see that he is tilting his head back presenting himself like a god he is sort of giving a look of of domineering power over everyone else looking down on everyone else and the fact is that that stance that posture wasn't a creative decision it was because he couldn't see out of his contact lenses mm. he was wearing he was wearing these silver contact lenses that had little holes you know poked in them so the only way that he could see was to tilt his head back. And that is why uh, he, he looks like that. But as it turned out, it was a great decision yeah. for the character because he, he does look he's carrying himself very differently than he did before he had the powers. And he hits the force field and backs up and then he hits it again There he goes! and falls down and his eyes return to normal. And he says, Jim. Okay, let me ask you a question. What is he thinking in that moment when he says, Jim? It seems like a help me. Yes. It seems, and what's one of the things that's really interesting is that when he's a god, he calls him James. When he's Gary Mitchell, he calls him Jim. So it's not just, it seems to me, that this is just who Gary Mitchell is and his godlike powers is corrupting him, as Kirk says later. It seems as if these powers are actually changing his personality oh absolutely in a way. and yeah. so and so he is there's this moment where he's like no i i help me i want to be your friend and that moment ends very very quickly you know it's such a it's such a great moment because because gary lockwood's entire projection is is completely different like like he's he's free and he's back to himself and is he is he back to himself and saying jim i'm back or is he is he is it, is it a cry for help? His eyes went back to normal. Fighting the force field drained his strength. For a while, at least. He could be handled now. But, you know, it's only, it's a fleeting moment. You said this a tragedy, and it's, that's exactly what this is. Because there is an inevitability to this story. Is that we keep heading towards James Kirk is going to have to kill his friend. 
Mm-hmm. That is what the story is. And it and and like a good tragedy, it has a sense of inevitability. Because the, what they do with Spock is so great. Because in the next scene, we hear from Scotty. He says, Mr. Spock, get the phaser rifle we sent down. I didn't order any. And there's Spock with the phaser rifle. Affirmative. Landing party out. Because Spock went behind his back. You see Kirk slam down the communicator. And, and I love this moment because this is where you see how good Nimoy is because Kirk says, what makes you right? And a trained psychiatrist wrong because she feels I don't. All I know is logic. In my opinion, we'll be lucky if we can repair this ship and get away in time. Kirk takes a beat. He's thinking about it. And he says to Kelso, Mitchell gets out at your discretion. Lee, if sitting here, you think you're the last chance. I want you to hit that button. That brings us to the end of Act 3. This is, again, it's the difference between Kirk and Pike because Pike, in talking to the doctor, is saying, I'm tired of deciding who lives and who dies, which is an absolutely reasonable thing for a character to feel. But that is not Kirk. Kirk is like, this is what is necessary. And we see that from here through all, all the movies and everything is that Kirk is going to do what he has to do to win you know, or to survive or do the right thing. Um, uh, we're back uh, from commercial <laughs> and we hear some uh, captain's log about Mitchell getting stronger. And there's Dr. Daner is looking at him. And I think her performance is really good too, because she has to do this subtle thing of changing her character because one can only assume that she's been feeling things for a while. It's coming on slower for her. But she, I think she knew a while ago that she was turning into what he's turning into. And she decides she wants to stay behind. And when Dr. Daner says, I'm staying with him, Spock and Kirk have to know what she's actually saying. She's saying, I'm becoming like him. And she, she might very well be saying, you have to separate from me or I am going to become just as evil as he is going to be. And at that moment, we see a close-up of Gary Mitchell. And this is another great touch that James Goldstone brought to the episode. And also Fred Phillips, the makeup artist. When we see the close-up onto Gary, we see that his, his hair is turning gray. I mean, it's been like really dark brown or black this entire episode. But as he becomes more powerful, the power is, is ravaging his body. And it's almost aging him because the power is having such an adverse effect on his body. But it's during this moment where, where, where he thinks about Kelso, who's near, you know, the, in the main control room on Delta Vega, sitting by the, uh, the button. And we see Kelso become the very first casualty of Star Trek. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. He's not even wearing a red shirt. Right. Nobody was in this episode. (laughs) But when we cut back from that, when Kelso has already dead and you just sort of see Mitchell look down without any kind of real remorse, you hear Kirk say, you're beaming up to the ship with us, doctor. And then that great moment when Mitchell holds up his hand. You should have killed me while you could, James. And then the echo, the power of a God talking Command and compassion is a fool's mixture. And he zaps them, he zaps Kirk, he zaps Spock, and he just kind of 
whisks away the force field from the brig that he's in, and Daner walks in, and they both look into the mirror and the big reveal that Daner has become a god. It's so great. It's just, this is, look, I know this is a 50-something-year-old TV show. I think this is all so well done. It's really, really, and and again, I think about Batman and Gilligan's Island and Bonanza and Bewitched, and like they're doing so much more in this, in this show. And, and, and there's a huge music sting. And then it's later, the doc doctor is waking Kirk up. Kirk finds out that Kelso's dead, Spock's still alive, and that Daner went with Mitchell. And I love that Kirk says this. Don't give him a pill until after I'm gone. My fault. Mitchell got as far as he did. He's looking out for, for Spock. Well, and admitting that Spock was right the whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it's funny, too, because we started with Kirk beating Spock. That's how we started. And Spock's the failure of Spock's logic. And now we have ended up with why Spock, why he needs Spock, you know, because right. Spock was right. Spock you know? was right. Yeah. Well, that was that was always what was great about about the three of them, meaning Kirk, Spock and McCoy, is that they challenged each other. Mm-hmm. They complete they yeah, the borrow line from Jerry Maguire. They completed each other exactly. for sure. They were to the three of them together were like a, a great person, no question about it. Now, now when we we go out into the set of Delta Vega, which is basically reused from Talos Four from the Cage, same back map painting with the, the 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 rock formations in the back and the cloud, and they're going to create this world, which is a piece of cake for Gary Mitchell to now do. He creates a little oasis for them to live there forever, if not build their own civilization and be the god in charge and you see kirk coming through this narrow canyon with the phaser rifle which this is the only episode we ever saw the phaser rifle it's so it's a cool. bummer because i love the phaser rifle phaser rifle is great you know we saw we see pictures of kirk and spock with the phaser rifle and publicity photos but it never made it into one of the other episodes and of course they know he's coming and then you cut to him kind of crawling along with the phaser rifle and i think there is a total sense of doom. He, I think Kirk looks so helpless in this situation that it's just like there's just no possible way uh, he could win. Look, he knows that Gary Mitchell is a god and he is way powerful and that phaser rifle won't do squat, but he goes anyway. He goes with his tail between his legs. He knows it is, it is such a vulnerable depiction of Kirk, and it's not something that we we see a whole lot. And then Gary makes some apples, which again, it's it's so funny because they eat the apple, and he's creating this garden. And I'm like, look, the cage is about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and mm. now we have Adam and Eve again, and you have the apple that they're going to eat from. Like, a, clearly, there's some similar stuff going on. That's a great point. That is a great observation. You're right. I never thought about that before. And as they're eating, as Mitchell and Dana are eating the apple, that great line that Mitchell says with a mischief in his voice. Can you hear me, James? You cannot see me. I'm not there. You follow the right path, James. You'll come to me soon. Oh, it's so chilling. It's chilling. When, when I'm going to fight a god and the god tell, talks to me and welcomes me and knows that I'm coming, that is a bad sign. <laughs> and, and he sends Dr. Daner out and says, 
I want you to see just how unimportant they are. All right. Now, at this moment, you have to consider the stakes, all the stakes in this episode, not only because you have this, this person displaying godlike powers that are really beyond his capacity to manage and handle because uh, he doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the wisdom. But this is also somebody who can wipe, that, wipe the enterprise out of existence yep. with the wave of his hand, if not do more serious damage as he becomes more and more powerful. There is no limit to the, the peak of his powers. And also the stakes are that this is Kirk's friend. This is his friend that he has to now go and try to kill. The stakes are high. The stakes are deep. Absolutely. And and what's so interesting is like, are we going to get a, a, a full action sequence coming up? We are. But one of we're also going to get one of Kirk's other superpowers, which is Kirk can talk. Is that it's going to be him talking. That It's not him fighting that wins the day, although he has to fight. What he's doing is right for him and me. And for humanity. You're still human. No, At least I... partly you are. And this is the first Kirk speech. You know what I mean? This is the guy who talked planets out of being at war. This is the guy who could mental jujitsu a computer into destroying himself. Like Kirk can talk. And this speech is so great. It's so good. Before long, we'll be where it would have taken mankind millions of years of learning to read. And what will Mitchell learn on getting there? It's great. He, he, his, he, you're right about everything about how Kirk has his power of persuasion. He, he is a leader. He has the, 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 he can reason, you know, when Kirk is trying to reason, like when he tried to reason with the companion in metamorphosis, when he talked nomad and Landrew into self-destructing. And uh, in this case, he is trying to reason with Daner about this power. Like you see what it's doing to him. Will he know what to do with this power? Will he acquire the wisdom? Did you hear him joke about compassion? Shatner's delivery is so committed when he just screams out like he needs to scream because Mitchell can clearly hear everything that they're saying. But out of passion, he says, All else a god needs compassion. Mitchell! I mean, he's so, it's such a committed performance. Can you see Jeffrey Hunter doing that? I can't. No, no. And, and, and these are, we're getting into, because the great thing about science fiction is it's about ideas. And it's like, and this idea of power and compassion and bringing them together. I mean, this is like with great power comes great responsibility. It's the exact same idea. And it's also, you know, America is a superpower right now, you know, and this is a message. When you are the most powerful thing in the world of all else, a God needs compassion. What do you know about gods? And he just without missing a beat. Then let's talk about humans, about our frailties. As powerful as he gets, he'll still have all that inside him. Go back. You were a psychiatrist once. You know the ugly, savage things we all keep buried that none of us dare expose, but he'll dare. Who's to stop him? He doesn't need to care. What's your prognosis, doctor? And this is how one of the ways good screenwriting works is that that, because she is the pivot point of the show. What is she going to do? It's not about what's Kirk going to do. It's about what Dr. Daner is going to do. And she does not answer the question. What's your prognosis, doctor? 
and she says he's coming. And the way she says it, like she like looks down and goes, he's coming. I'm disappointed in you, Elizabeth. That roll over with the phaser rifle. Kirk aims right for his heart, shoots away, and Mitchell looks down at the beam hitting his heart, and he just laughs and just waves off the phaser rifle like it was a tin, an empty can of soda. (laughs) And I love this line. I've been contemplating the death of an old friend. Now, at this point, we start to see... uh, you know, Mitchell manipulating like he he sort of digs a hole, makes a hole appear out of nowhere. And then we see a tombstone with the name James R. Kirk, <laughs> not James T. Kirk. Now, you could say, oh, it was just the pilot. You know, they, they didn't change the name to T until they went to series. But the other fan theory okay. is that is OK. The other fan theory is that, the you know, Gary Mitchell, you know, he was he was being so overwhelmed by the powers that he now had that it was it was messing with his memory and he just didn't quite get his name right and he put an r instead of a t now i know i'm just you know going with the fan fiction here but i like it it works for me i'm going with it the carol marcus one i love <laughs> yes this carol one, not so- one <laughs> is so great i love this- it too this one, not so much. And we even see this giant rock that he's obviously going to use to crush uh, Jim Kirk. Stop it, Gary. Morals are for men, not gods. And then Kirk keeps going. A god still driven by human frailty. And again, he's playing on the doctor. He knows she's his only hope. Do you like what you see? Absolute power corrupting absolutely. I... Every time I think of that phrase, it is William Shatner's voice I hear. Absolute power corrupting absolutely. Absolutely. And they've said that line again elsewhere in Star Trek. Uh, that's come up a few times and it came up again in the original series. It is, a, it is a theme that has been explored many times throughout Star Trek. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and we also get to see, so we've seen 3D chess. We've seen, we've seen um, Spock and Kirk's relationship. We've seen Kirk make the speech. And now we get to see the unique way that only William Shatner can move his body when somebody else is controlling it. I love, because Gary makes him, pray to me and he makes it go down i love there's each move it has a musical sting and even this weird head thing that shatner yeah, does yeah. but it's, you know what it's such a powerful scene because shatner is he's really committed he's so committed mm-hmm. to this performance i mean it is an outstanding performance that shatner gave in this episode the range that he gives uh, the physical and emotional range and but all that persuasion that pep talk that Kirk gave to Dana worked because she sees what's going on. She's not far enough along in her powers to be completely manipulated by it. And she sees that Kirk is right. And she knows that she's the only one that can stop Gary Mitchell at this point, at least temporarily until Kirk can get the upper hand. And then she and Mitchell go back and forth zapping each other until Mitchell is depleted of his powers He returns to a mere mortal form, and she says to him, Hurry, you haven't much time. And he just socks him in the face. And here's the thing that's so interesting to me about this. We just did the cage. 
the actual hero of the cage is number one because she's the one who puts the the, the laser at the time on overload. She says it's better. For, I'm going to kill us all rather than us being enslaved. And right now, the key person to saving everybody is a woman. In both of these episodes, it, everything pivots on the the courage of a female character in in, in the mid '60s. It's amazing. Uh, Watching, watching the, the the hand-to-hand combat between Kirk and Mitchell, <laughs> so so watching it on high definition, yeah, you know, they never intended for this show to be seen as sharp as it is now. And you know, there are sometimes you can see that it's clearly stuntmen. I, I but, could see it was stuntmen before it was high definition. It's not covered up that much, but it is still a great scene. It is the action adventure that NBC wanted. And this scene alone is what sold Star Trek. Not the cerebral aspects of it, not the depth of power corrupting absolutely, not the personal stakes of of trying to to save your ship, but you got to kill your friend. It was the action adventure of this final fight scene. And that is what made the people in the screening room at NBC say yes to Star Trek as a series. And I will say first, mid-60s television fight scenes it's good it's pretty yeah yeah it's great it's great and kirk is winning this fight he's got gary mitchell down he lifts up a rock is about to kill him and looks into his eyes and hesitates just for a moment gary forgive me and in that moment the eyes turn back for a moment james which moment is fading and he just tosses Kirk around like a rag doll from that point forward. And Kirk uh, really doesn't have a leg to stand on. But they both end up in the grave and Kirk manages to get up first. And this is the thing. He gets the phaser rifle, but he doesn't shoot it at Gary because he already it's knows it's not going to help. Yeah. It's not going to help. He shoots it at that big giant rock to get it to fall on top of Gary. And that is how he defeats him. It's a great scene. It's a perfectly staged action sequence. It's one that absolutely holds up 56 years after it was filmed. Uh, it is. It, it just ends the episode on such an exciting note. But then, you know, the tragedy that, you know, he his friend is dead, that Daner is, is, uh, has, is on her last breath. Can't know what it's like to be almost a god. And Kirk, you know, having ripped his shirt for the first Okay, of many times, I, can you guess how many times throughout the original series that Kirk either ripped his shirt or removed his shirt completely? Oh, boy. I, I honestly have never considered this question. I have no idea, but I will guess 37 times. Oh, no, no. You're, you're way uh, uh, 19, 19 times. 19 times. Uh, which out of 79 episodes is a lot. <laughs> and we're back on the bridge of the Enterprise. Add to official losses. Dr. Elizabeth Dana. Yet noted she gave her life in performance of her duty. Lieutenant Commander Gary Mitchell. And there's a pause. Same notation. I want his service record to end that way. He didn't ask for what happened to him. And then a great little Kirk Spock moment. Spock says, I felt for him too. Kirk looks up. I mean, this is classic Star Trek right here. I believe there's some hope for you after all, Mr. Spock. Oh, it's so great. And then we fly off and we have finished the first true episode of Star Trek, the original series. This episode, you know, 
I know you were really excited to do this episode. Yeah. You said, I got to host this episode. It's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites too. I agree with your assessment, Steve, that it is just, it's just a great episode, not just a great pilot, obviously the one that sold the series, but it's a great Star Trek episode. It is one that I go back and rewatch over and over again. But what are your parting thoughts for where no man has gone before? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is it, what's amazing about it is how much is there. And yes, they're going to develop. They, there are all sorts of things we don't have yet. But in terms of the essential relationship between Kirk and Spock, it's kind of there. And it does this thing that I have always believed in that Hollywood frequently doesn't believe can be done, which is to have a story that has real action and thrills and it's also about something because this is about ideas of power. It's about leadership and it's about a real tragedy of a friend having to kill his friend. Like it, that is, and it honestly still moves me every time, every time he says, forgive me, Gary, that moment is just really powerful. You know, I agree with you completely. I think that where no man has gone before represents the best of what Star Trek is all about. It is one of Star Trek's finest hours because in addition to being a groundbreaking, trailblazing, action-adventure science fiction show, it is a show about ideas. It is a show that is aspirational. It is a show that is very philosophical. It is a show that is provocative, makes you think. It is There's so much depth to it. The characters are so fully realized and so much of what came with... What came to define Star Trek at its very best was right there in the very first really true episode of the original series. And again, the way that Kirk started and the way that Kirk ended this episode just proved that he was the guy. He was born to play Captain Kirk and he and Leonard Nimoy just had that chemistry and that charisma and that dynamic relationship from the very beginning. And there's so much about this particular episode where no man has gone before that represents everything that I've always loved and will always love about Star Trek. Uh, this has been so great. I'm so excited to go on this journey with you. And if you want to go on this journey with us, the best way to do it is to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that on iTunes or Google Play, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify. And please, please, please leave those reviews on iTunes. And if you want to follow the show, you could do it on Facebook with just search for the Enterprise Incidents. Enterprise Incidents is our handle on Instagram and Enter Incidents on Twitter. Scott, how would people reach you on the interwebs? Okay, well, first of all, I got to say for everyone who listened to this episode do hit us up on social media hit us up especially on twitter because we respond we read them we respond we want to know exactly what you thought of this episode of enterprise incident so hit me up on twitter on instagram but especially on twitter at movie mance that's with a t z and let me know let us know what you think so far of enterprise incidents because we absolutely want to know this is the first podcast i've ever co-hosted fronted with steve and and you know it is really really important i really want to know what you think and so does steve and so does everybody so hit me up on twitter and instagram at movie mance steve where can people hit you up 
Well, I can't wait to hear from you too. And I love responding to people. So the best place is on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris One. And in addition to listening to the incredible episodes on the Cinephiles with Scott Mance, you could also listen to episodes on everything from Citizen Kane and Lawrence of Arabia to Star Wars and the Big Lebowski. So check that out at Cinephiles. And Scott, where are we going next with the crew of the Enterprise? Wow, this is very, very exciting, Steve. So now that we have the two pilots out of the way, now that we officially have Star Trek has been sold as a series to NBC that will debut in the fall of 1966, we are going big, we are going deep, with the very first episode of Star Trek ever produced as a sold TV series. And since we are going in production order, that means we are going next with the Corbo Mike Maneuver. So join me and join Steve Morris and join Baylock for Enterprise Incidents on the Corbo Mike Maneuver. And until next time, keep going boldly. <laughs> <laughs>